Section 20 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4, by James Boswell. Section 20. I had paid a visit to General Oglethorpe in the morning, and was told by him that Dr. Johnson saw company on Saturday evenings, and he would meet me at Johnson's that night. When I mentioned this to Johnson, not doubting that it would please him, as he had a great value for Oglethorpe, the fretfulness of his disease unexpectedly showed itself. His anger suddenly kindled and he said with vehemence, Did you not tell him not to come? Am I to be hunted in this manner? I satisfied him that I could not divine that the visit would not be convenient, and that I certainly could not take it upon me of my own accord to forbid the general. I found Dr. Johnson in the evening in Mrs. Williams' room at tea and coffee with her, and Mrs. Desmoulins, who were also both ill. It was a sad scene, and he was not in very good humor. He said of a performance that had lately come out, Sir, if you should search all the madhouses in England, you would not find ten men who could write so and think it sense. I was glad when General Oglethorpe's arrival was announced, and we left the ladies. Dr. Johnson attended him in the parlor, and was as courteous as ever. The general said he was busy reading the writers of the Middle Age. Johnson said they were very curious. Oglethorpe. The House of Commons has usurped the power of the nation's money, and used it tyrannically. Government is now carried on by corrupt influence instead of the inherent right of the king. Johnson. Sir, the want of inherent right in the king occasions all this disturbance. What we did at the revolution was necessary, but it broke our constitution. Footnote. I have, in my journal of a tour to the Hebrides, fully expressed my sentiments upon this subject. The revolution was necessary, but not a subject for glory, because it for a long time blasted the generous feelings of loyalty. And now, when by the benignant effects of time the present royal family are established in our affections, how unwise it is to revive by celebrations the memory of a shock which it would surely have been better that our Constitution had not required. Boswell. End footnote. Oglethorpe. My father did not think it necessary. On Saturday, March 23rd, I breakfasted with Dr. Johnson, who seemed much relieved, having taken opium the night before. He, however, protested against it, as a remedy that should be given with the utmost reluctance, and only in extreme necessity. 
I mentioned how commonly it was used in Turkey, and that therefore it could not be so pernicious as he apprehended. He grew warm and said, Turks take opium, and Christians take opium, but Russell, in his account of Aleppo, tells us that it is as disgraceful in Turkey to take too much opium as it is with us to get drunk. Sir, it is amazing how things are exaggerated. A gentleman was lately telling in a company where I was present that in France, as soon as a man of fashion marries, he takes an opera girl into keeping, and this he mentioned as a general custom. Pray, sir, said I, how many opera girls may there be? He answered, about fourscore. Well then, sir, said I, you see there can be no more than fourscore men of fashion who can do this. Footnote. Johnson, four months later, wrote to one of Mrs. Thrale's daughters, Never think, my sweet, that you have arithmetic enough, when you have exhausted your master by books. A thousand stories which the ignorant tell and believe die away at once when the computist takes them in his gripe. End of footnote. Mrs. Desmoulins made tea, and she and I talked before him upon a topic which he had once borne patiently from me when we were by ourselves. He is not complaining of the world, because he was not called to some great office, nor had attained great wealth. He flew into a violent passion, I confess with some justice, and commanded us to have done. Nobody, said he, has a right to talk in this manner to bring before a man his own character and the events of his life when he does not choose it should be done. I never have sought the world. The world was not to seek me. It is rather wonderful that so much has been done for me. All the complaints which are made of the world are unjust. I never knew a man of merit neglected. It was generally by his own fault that he failed of success footnote. See nations slowly, wise, and meanly just, to buried merit raise the tardy bust. Johnson's Vanity of Human Wishes. End of footnote. A man may hide his head in a hole. He may go into the country and publish a book now and then, which nobody reads, and then complain he is neglected. Footnote. He was, perhaps, thinking of Markland, end of footnote. There is no reason why any person should exert himself for a man who has written a good book. He has not written it for any individual. I may as well make a present to the postman who brings me a letter. When patronage was limited, an author expected to find a Mycenaeus and complained if he did not find one. Why should he complain? This Mycenaeus has others as good as he, or others who have got the start of him. Boswell. But surely, sir, you will allow that there are men of merit at the bar who never get practice. Johnson. Sir, you are sure that practice is got from an opinion that the person employed deserves it best, 
so that if a man of merit at the bar does not get practice, it is from error, not from injustice. He is not neglected. A horse that is brought to market may not be bought, though he is a very good horse, but that is from ignorance, not from intention. Footnote. Dr. Johnson writes, Mrs. Posse was no complainer of ill usage. I never heard him even lament the disregard shown to Irene. End of footnote. There was in this discourse much novelty, ingenuity, and discrimination, such as is seldom to be found. Yet I cannot help thinking that men of merit, who have no success in life, may be forgiven for lamenting, if they are not allowed to complain. They may consider it as hard that their merit should not have its suitable distinction, though there is no intentional injustice towards them on the part of the world, their merit not having been perceived. They may yet repine against fortune or fate, or by whatever name they choose to call the supposed mythological power of destiny. It has, however, occurred to me, as a consolatory thought, that men of merit should consider thus, how much harder would it be if the same persons had both all the merit and all the prosperity? Would not this be a miserable distribution for the poor dunces? Would men of merit exchange their intellectual superiority and the enjoyments arising from it for external distinction and the pleasures of wealth? If they would not, let them not envy others who are poor where they are rich, a compensation which is made to them. Let them look inwards and be satisfied, recollecting with conscious pride what Virgil finally says of the Coricius Senex, and what I have in another place, with truth and sincerity, applied to Mr. Burke. Regum aequabat opes animis. Footnote. Letter to the people of Scotland against the attempt to diminish the number of the Lords of Session, 1785. Boswell. By Mr. Burke's removal from office, the King's administration was deprived of the assistance of that affluent mind, which is so universally rich, that as long as British literature and British politics shall endure, it will be said of Edmund Burke, Regum Iquabat Sic Opes Animis. End of footnote. On the subject of the right employment of wealth, Johnson observed, A man cannot make a bad use of his money, so far as regards society, if he does not hoard it, for if he either spends it or lends it out, society has the benefit. It is in general better to spend money than to give it away, for industry is more promoted by spending money than by giving it away. A man who spends his money is sure he is doing good with it. He is not so sure when he gives it away. A man who spends 10000 a year will do more good than a man who spends 2000 and gives away eight. In the evening I came to him again, 
he was somewhat fretful from his illness. A gentleman. Footnote. Very likely Boswell. End of footnote. Asked him whether he had been abroad today. Don't talk so childishly, said he. You may as well ask if I hang myself today. I mentioned politics. Johnson. Sir, I'd as soon have a man to break my bones as to talk to me of politic affairs, internal or external. I have lived to see things all as bad as they can be. Having mentioned his friend, the second Lord Southwell, he said, Lord Southwell was the highest-bred man without insolence that I ever was in company with, the most qualified I ever saw. Lord Orrery was not dignified. Lord Chesterfield was, but he was insolent. Footnote. Johnson had said, Lord Chesterfield is the proudest man of this day existing. End of footnote. Lord is a man of coarse manners, but a man of abilities and information. Footnote. Lord Shelburne, at this time he was merely holding office till a new ministry was formed. On April 5th he was succeeded by the Duke of Portland. His coarse manners were due to a neglected childhood. In the fragment of his autobiography, he describes the domestic brutality and ill-usage he experienced at home in the south of Ireland. It cost me, he continues, more to unlearn the habits, manners, and principles which I then imbibed than would have served to qualify me for any role whatever through life. End of footnote. I don't say he is a man I would set at the head of a nation, though perhaps he may be as good as the next prime minister that comes. But he is a man to be at the head of a club. I don't say our club, for there's no such club. Boswell. But, sir, was he not once a factious man? Johnson. Oh, yes, sir, as factious a fellow as could be found, one who was for sinking us all into the mob. Footnote. Bentham it is reported, said of him that, alone of his own time, he was a minister who did not fear the people. End of footnote. Boswell. How then, sir, did he get into favor with the king? Johnson. Because, sir, I suppose he promised the king to do whatever the king pleased. He said, Goldsmith's blundering speech to Lord Shelburne, which has been so often mentioned, and which he really did make to him, was only a blunder and emphasis. I wonder they should call your lordship Malagrita, for Malagrita was a very good man, meant, I wonder they should use Malagrita as a term of reproach. Footnote. Malagrita, a Jesuit, was put to death at Lisbon in 1761 nominally on a charge of heresy, but in reality on a suspicion of his having sanctioned, as confessor to one of the conspirators, an attempt to assassinate King Joseph of Portugal. His name, writes Roxel, is become proverbial among us to express duplicity. 
It was first applied to Lord Shelburne in a squib attributed to Wilkes, which contained a vision of a masquerade. The writer, after describing him as masquerading as the heir apparent of Loyola and all the college, continues, A little more of the devil, my lord, if you please, about the eyebrows, and that's enough. A perfect Malagrida, I protest. George the Third habitually spoke of Shelburne as Malagrida, and the Jesuit of Berkeley Square. The charge of duplicity was first made against Shelburne on the retirement of Fox, the first Lord Holland, in 1763. It was the conduct of Shelburne by telling Fox that it was a pious fraud. I can see the fraud plainly enough, is said to have been Fox's retort, but where is the piety? Anyone who has examined Reynolds' picture of Shelburne, especially about the eyebrows, at once sees how the name of Jesuit was given. Berkeley wrote to Lord Claremont on November twentieth, 1773. Goldsmith the other day put a paragraph into the newspapers in praise of Lord Mayor Townsend. Shelburne supported Townsend in opposition to Wilkes in the election of the Lord Mayor. The same night, we happened to sit next to Lord Shelburne at Drury Lane. I mentioned the circumstance of the paragraph to him. He said to Goldsmith that he hoped that he had mentioned nothing about Malagrida in it. Do you know, answered Goldsmith, that I never could conceive the reason why they call you Malagrida? For Malagrida was a very good sort of man. You see plainly what he meant to say, but that happy turn of expression is peculiar to himself. Mr. Walpole says that this story is a picture of Goldsmith's whole life. End of footnote. Soon after this time, I had an opportunity of seeing by means of one of his friends, footnote, most likely Reynolds, who introduced Crabbe to Johnson, end of footnote, a proof that his talents, as well as his obliging service to authors, were ready as ever. He had revised The Village, an admirable poem, by the Reverend Mr. Crabbe, its sentiments as to the false notions of rustic happiness and rustic virtue were quite congenial with his own, and he had taken the trouble not only to suggest slight connections and variations, but to furnish some lines when he thought he could give the writer's meaning better than in the words of the manuscript. I paint the cot as truth will paint it, and as bards will not. Nor you, ye poor of lettered scorn, complain. To you the smoothest song is smooth and vain. Or come by labor, and bowed down by time, feel you the barren flattery of a rhyme? Can poets soothe you, when you pine for bread, by winding myrtles round your ruined shed? Can their light tales your weighty griefs or power, or glad with airy mirth the toilsome hour? The Village Book. I shall give an instance, marking the original by Roman and Johnson's substitution in italic characters. In fairer scenes where peaceful pleasures spring, 
Tityrus, the pride of Mantuan swains, might sing, but charmed by him or smitten with his views, shall modern poets court the Mantuan muse? From truth and nature shall we widely stray, where fancy leads or Virgil led the way? On Mincio's banks and Caesar's bounteous reign, if Tityrus found the golden age again, must sleepy bards the flattery dream prolong, mechanic echoes of the Mantuan song. From truth and nature shall we widely stray, where Virgil, not where fancy, leads the way. Here we find Johnson's poetical and critical powers undiminished. I must, however, observe that the aids he gave to this poem, as to the traveller and the deserted village of Goldsmith, were so small as by no means to impair the distinguished merit of the author. Boswell. End of footnote. On Saturday, March 30th, I found him at home in the evening, and had the pleasure to meet with Dr. Brocklesby, whose reading and knowledge of life and good spirits supply him with a never-failing source of conversation. Footnote. He says that the register of deaths of military men proves that more than eight times as many men fall by what was called the jail fever as by battle. His suggestions are eminently wise. Lord Seaford, in 1835, told Leslie that he remembered dining in company with Dr. Johnson at Dr. Brocklesby's when he was a boy of twelve or thirteen. He was impressed with the superiority of Johnson and his knocking everybody down in argument. End of footnote. He mentioned a respectable gentleman who became extremely penurious near the close of his life. Johnson said there must have been a degree of madness about him. Not at all, sir, said Dr. Brocklesby. His judgment was entire. Unluckily, however, he mentioned that although he had a fortune of twenty-seven thousand pounds, he denied himself many comforts from an apprehension that he could not afford them. Nay, sir, cried Johnson, when the judgment is so disturbed that a man cannot count, that is pretty well. I shall here insert a few of Johnson's sayings without the formality of dates, as they have no reference to any particular time or place. The more a man extends and varies his acquaintance, the better. This, however, was meant with a just restriction, for he on another occasion said to me, Sir, a man may be so much of everything that he is nothing of anything. Raising the wages of day laborers is wrong, for it does not make them live better, but only makes them idler, and idleness is a very bad thing for human nature. It is a very good custom to keep a journal for a man's own use. He may write down upon a card a day all that is necessary to be written, after he has had experience of life. At first there is a great deal to be written, because there is a great deal of novelty. But when once a man has settled his opinions, there is seldom much to be set down. 
there is nothing wonderful in the journal which we see Swift kept in London, for it contains slight topics, and it might soon be written. Footnote. In his Life of Swift, he thus speaks of this journal. In the midst of his power and his politics, he kept a journal of his visit, his walks, his interviews with ministers, and quarrels with his servant, and transmitted it to Mrs. Johnson and Mrs. Dingley, to whom he knew that whatever befell him was interesting, and no accounts could be too minute. Whether these diurnal trifles were properly exposed to eyes which had never received any pleasure from the presence of the dean may be reasonably doubted. They have, however, some odd attraction. The reader, finding frequent mention of names which he has been used to consider as important, goes on in hope of information, and, as there is nothing to fatigue attention if he is disappointed, he can hardly complain. End of footnote. I praise the accuracy of an account-book of a lady whom I mentioned. Johnson. Keeping accounts, sir, is of no use when a man is spending his own money, and has nobody to whom he is to account. You won't eat less beef today because you have written down what it cost yesterday. I mentioned another lady who thought as he did, so that her husband could not get her to keep an account of the expense of the family, as she thought it enough that she never exceeded the sum allowed her. Johnson. Sir, it is fit she should keep an account because her husband wishes it, but I do not see its use. Footnote. On his fifty-fifth birthday he recorded, I resolved to keep a journal both of employment and of expenses, to keep accounts. See Post, August twenty-fifth, 1784, where he writes to Langton, I am a little angry at you for not keeping minutes of your own aceptum et expensum, and think a little time might be spared from Aristophanes for the race familiares. End of footnote. I maintain that keeping an account has this advantage, that it satisfies a man that his money has not been lost or stolen, which he might sometimes be apt to imagine where there no written state of his expense. And beside, a calculation of uh, economy so as not to exceed one's income cannot be made without a view of the different articles and figures that one may see how to retrench in some particulars less necessary than others. This he did not attempt to answer. Talking of an acquaintance of ours, whose narratives, which abounded in curious and interesting topics, were unhappily found to be very fabulous. Footnote. This Mr. Chalmers thought was George Stevens, Crocker. Disraeli describes Stevens as guilty of an unparalleled series of arch deception and malicious ingenuity. He gives curious instances of his literary impostures. End of footnote. I mention Lord Mansfield's having said to me, Suppose we believe one half of what he tells. Johnson. Aye, but we don't know which half to believe. 
By his lying we lose not only our reverence for him, but all comfort in his conversation. Boswell. May we not take it as amusing fiction? Johnson. Sir, the misfortune is that you will insensibly believe as much of it as you incline to believe. It is remarkable that notwithstanding their congeniality in politics, he never was acquainted with the late eminent notable judge whom I have heard speak of him as a writer with great respect. Footnote. If this be Lord Mansfield, Boswell must use late in the sense of in retirement, for Mansfield was living when the life of Johnson was published. He retired in 1788. Johnson, in 1772, said that he had never been in his company. The fact that Mansfield is mentioned in the previous paragraph adds to the probability that he is meant. End of footnote. Johnson, I know not upon what degree of investigation entertain no exalted opinion of his lordship's intellectual character. Footnote. In Scotland, Johnson spoke of Mansfield's splendid talents. End of footnote. Talking of him to me one day, he said, It is wonderful, sir, with how little real superiority of mind men can make an eminent figure in public life. He expressed himself to the same purpose concerning another law lord, who, it seems, once took a fancy to associate with the wits of London, but with so little success that Foote said, What can he mean by coming among us? He's not only dull himself, but the cause of dullness in others. Footnote. I am not only witty in myself, but the cause of wit is in other men. End of footnote. Trying him by the test of his colloquial powers, Johnson had found him very defective. He once said to Sir Joshua Reynolds, This man now has been ten years about town, and has made nothing of it, meaning as a companion. Footnote. Knowing, as well as I do, what precision and elegance of oratory his lordship can display, I cannot but suspect that his unfavorable appearance in a social circle, which drew such animadversions upon him, must be owing to a cold affectation of consequence from being reserved and stiff. If it be so, and he might be an agreeable man if he would, we cannot be sorry that he misses his aim. Boswell. Wedderborne, afterwards Lord Loughborough, is mentioned, and again in Murphy's Life of Johnson, as being in company with Johnson and Foote. Boswell also has before praised the elegance of his oratory. Henry Mackenzie says that Wedderborn belonged to a club of the British Coffee House, of which Garrick, Smollett, and Dr. Douglas were members. End of footnote. He said to me, I never heard anything from him in company that was at all striking, and depend upon it, sir, it is when you come close to a man in conversation that you discover what his real abilities are. To make a speech in a public assembly is a knack. Now I honor Thurlow, sir, 
Thurlow is a fine fellow. He fairly puts his mind to yours. Footnote. Boswell informed the people of Scotland in the letter that he addressed to them in 1785 that now that Dr. Johnson has gone to a better world, he, Boswell, bowed the intellectual knee to Lord Thurlow. End of footnote. After relating to him some of his pointed, lively sayings, I said, It is a pity, sir, you don't always remember your own good things, that you may have a laugh when you will. Johnson. Nay, sir, it is better that I forget them, that I may be reminded of them, and have a laugh on their being brought to my recollection. End of section 20. Reading by Malone.